Greetings, fine gentlemen. A happy Friday. Can you believe it is already a Friday afternoon to you? I uh, have braved the cold weathers. My wife and I were out and about uh, just doing some shopping, and uh, it's nearly freezing outside. Now, some would dispute and say, Scott, 45 degrees is not freezing. But when you have been in the African heat, this is freezing, let me tell you. Mr. Max, I hope you are well in uh, the north, the great white north, as it were. Drongo, good evening. Scotch Cuban, mm, very good. The pub is in session. Copper Star, Archangelus, RJJ. Well, praise God, gents. It's good to have you all in. So I thought I would just uh, have some story time today. We're going to uh, be reading uh, de Tocqueville, who was a Frenchie. Uh, those French, let me tell you. I bet Mr. Max, you know, it's like you, you know, you judge those Frenchies just as much as everyone else does, you know. Ah, Pyramid Head. That's right. The triple six subs. Thank you. <laughs> and welcome. I'm going to need one more guy, please. Just uh, let's, you know what I'm saying? So uh, de Tocqueville was a, um, a French lawyer and a, a hotshot aristocratic up-and-coming young gentleman who went to go and tour um, America in the 1830s uh, to try and like figure out why did America have a successful revolution? How did they absolutely um, civilize and succeed uh, where the French did not? You know, the French by 1830 had had a succession of revolutions and violent regime changes and uh, degradation of, of civilization. And um, so this was his attempt. You know, he went around uh, basically uh, interviewing a bunch of people and then writing his reflections on American society. <laughs> That's right, Drongo. Thank you. Doing a service. <clears throat> All righty. The outward configuration of North America. North America divided into two vast regions, one sloping toward the North Pole, the other toward the equator. Mississippi Valley, Traces found there of the revolutions of the globe, the Atlantic coast on which the English colonies were founded. Differences in the appearance of South America and North America at the time of their discovery, forests of North America, prairies, roving tribes of natives, their appearance, moors and languages, traces of an unknown people. North America in its outward configuration exhibits certain general features that strike the eye at first glance, land and water, mountains and valleys, seem to have been separated with methodical care. Despite the profuse variety of landscape and scenery, a simple majesty of design stands out. The continent is divided into two vast regions of roughly equal size. One is bounded on the north by the North Pole and on the east and west by two great oceans. It stretches southward to form a triangle whose irregular sides touch at last below the Great Lakes of Canada. The second starts where the first leaves off, spanning the remainder of the continent. The first region slopes gently toward the pole, the second toward the equator. The land comprised by the first region declines so imperceptibly to the north that one might almost describe it as a plateau. Within this vast landmass, one finds neither high mountains nor deep valleys. Streams snake their way through it almost at random. Rivers intertwine, mingle, separate, and meet again. They spread into vast marshes, losing themselves in the watery labyrinth they create and only after countless detours find their way at last to the polar seas. The great lakes that bound this first region are not contained 
as are most lakes in the old world, by hills or rocks. Their flat banks rise only a few feet above the water's surface. Hence, each lake is like a vast bowl filled to the brim. The slightest change in the structure of the globe would send waves from these lakes racing off toward either the North Pole or the Tropical Sea. The second region is more uneven in elevation and better suited to permanent human habitation, which is why all these Canadians live within like a mile of the border or something such. Two long mountain ranges divided along its length. One of these, known as the Alleghenies, follows the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. The other runs parallel to the South Seas. Between these two mountain ranges lies a territory of 228,000 square leagues. Its area is therefore roughly six times the size of France. Yet this vast territory comprises but a single valley, which descends at one end from the rounded summits of the Alleghenies and rises at the other to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains without encountering any obstacles in between. At the bottom of this valley flows an immense river. Water flowing down from the mountains feeds this river from every direction. The French used to call it the Saint-Louis in memory of their far-off fatherland. And the Indians, in their grand eloquent tongue, have named it the Father of Waters, or Mississippi. The source of the Mississippi lies in the area of overlap between the two great regions I mentioned earlier, not far from the highest point of the plateau that divides them. Nearby rises another river, which discharges its waters into the polar seas. The Mississippi itself seems at first to hesitate as to its proper course. It turns back on itself several times, and only after tarrying a while amid lakes and marshes does it finally make up its mind and slowly wend its way southward. Following tranquilly, at times through the bed of clay that nature has dug for it, at other times swollen by storms, the Mississippi waters more than a thousand leagues along its course. 600 leagues north of its mouth, the river has already attained a mean depth of 15 feet, and ships of 300 tons can navigate nearly 200 leagues upstream. 57 major navigable rivers feed its flow. Its tributaries include a river of 1,300 leagues, another of 900 leagues, another of 600, another of 500, and four of 200, to say nothing of countless small streams whose waters flowing into it from every direction are absorbed into its current. The valley watered by the Mississippi seems to have been created for it alone. There, like a god, the river dispenses good and evil at will. Nature has seen to it that the fertility of its bottomland is inexhaustible. The farther one ventures from its banks, the sparser the vegetation becomes, and the poorer the soil. Everything withers or dies. Nowhere have the great convulsions of the globe left more obvious traces than in the Mississippi Valley. The whole aspect of the region attests to the effects of water. Both barrenness and fertility are consequences of its power. The tides of the primeval ocean piled up thick layers of vegetable matter in the valley's bottom, and with the passage of time, these deposits were leveled out. The river's right bank is lined with vast plains as flat as if a farmer had smoothed them with a roller. Toward the mountains, however, the terrain becomes increasingly uneven and barren. The soil seems pierced in a thousand places by primitive rocks, which stand out like the bones of a skeleton, from which time has stripped away muscle and flesh. The surface of the earth is covered with pulverized granite and irregularly shaped stones, among which a few plants manage to force their way. It is as though the debris of some vast edifice lay scattered about a fertile field. When the stones and powder are analyzed, their composition is easily seen to be the same as that of the arid, jagged peaks of the Rockies. Having flushed the soil down into the valley, the water no doubt carried off even some of the rocks, hurling them onto nearby slopes and grinding them together until finally the base of the mountain range was strewn with debris snatched from its summits. All in all, the Mississippi Valley is the most magnificent place God ever prepared for men to dwell. 
yet it is still but a vast wilderness. East of the Alleghenies, from the base of the mountains to the Atlantic Ocean, lies a long strip of rock and sand that appears to have been left behind by the receding ocean. Although this strip averages only 48 leagues in width, it is 390 leagues in length. In this part of the American continent, the soil yields to the farmer's labors only grudgingly. The vegetation is meager and unvarying. It was on this inhospitable coast that the efforts of human industry were first concentrated. On this arid tongue of land, the English colonies that would one day become the United States of America were born and matured. And there the center of power remains today. While in the hinterland, the true elements of the great people to whom the future of the continent no doubt belongs are being assembled almost in secret. When Europeans first landed on the shores of the West Indies and later on the coast of South America, they thought they had been transported into the fabled realms celebrated by the poets. The sea sparkled with the fires of the tropics. Its extraordinary limpid waters revealed to sailors for the first time the depth of the abyss. Here and there, small perfumed isles seemed to float like baskets of flowers on the calm surface of the sea. Wherever the eye turned, these enchanted places seemed to have been made to meet man's needs or else calculated to suit his pleasures. Most of the trees were laden with nutritious fruits and the ones least useful to man charmed him with the brilliance and variety of their colors. In a forest of fragrant citrus, wild figs, rounded leaf myrtle, acacia, and oleander, all laced with flowering vines, a multitude of birds unknown in Europe spread wings iridescent with purple and azure and joined their voices to the chorus of a nature teeming with vitality and life. Death lay concealed beneath this brilliant cloak, but no one saw it at the time. In the very air of these climates, moreover, there prevailed I know not what enervating influence, which bound man to the present and made him careless of the future. North America presented a different aspect. There, everything was grave, serious, solemn. It seemed to have been created to become the domain of the intelligence and the other to become the abode of the senses. A storm-tossed, fog-shrouded ocean washed its beaches. Granite boulders and sandy inlets lined its perimeter. The forests that blanketed its shores were dark and melancholy, and hardly anything grew in them other than pine, larch, oak, wild olive, and laurel. Breaching this outer rampart led to the thick shade of the central forest, where the largest of the trees found in either hemisphere grew side by side. Sycamore, catalpa, sugar maple, and Virginia poplar twined their branches with those of oak, beech, and linden. As in for forests under man's dominion, death here worked its ceaseless ravages but no one took it upon himself to remove the debris it left behind. Dead wood therefore piled up faster than it could decay to make way for the new growth. Yet even in the midst of all this debris, the work of reproduction continued without let up. Climbing vines and other plants crept among fallen trees and worked their way into decaying remains. They lifted and broke the shriveled bark that still clung to the dead wood, thereby clearing the way for young shoots. Thus death, in a way, served life. Each looked the other in the face, seemingly keen to mingle and confound their works. Within these forests, a profound obscurity reigned. A thousand streams, their courses not yet guided by human industry, ensured that the air was almost moist. Barely anything could be seen beyond a few flowers, some wild fruits, and occasional bird. Only the fall of a tree toppled by old age, the hiss of a waterfall, the bellowing of buffalo, and the whistle of the wind troubled the silence of nature. To the east of the great river, the woods gave way in places to boundless prairies. Had nature in her infinite variety deprived these fertile fields of the seed of trees, or had the forests that once covered them been destroyed by the hand of man? Neither tradition nor scientific research has yet provided an answer. This immense wilderness was not entirely devoid of human presence, however. For centuries, a few tribes had roved the dark forests and prairie pastures. 
From the mouth of the St. Laurent to the delta of the Mississippi, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, these savages resembled one another in certain ways, attesting to a common origin. But they differed from all other known races. They were neither white like Europeans, nor yellow like most Asians, nor black like Negroes. Their skin was of reddish complexion, their hair long and shiny, their lips thin and their cheekbones quite pronounced. The languages spoken by these savages of America differed in their vocabulary, but obeyed the same grammatical rules. And those rules differed in several respects from the ones previously known to govern the formation of human tongues. The idiom of the Americans seemed the product of new combinations. It bespoke an effort of intelligence on the part of its inventors, of which the Indians of today scarcely seem capable. The social state of these people also differed in several respects from anything to be seen in the old world. They seem to have multiplied freely in their wilderness without contact with more civilized races. They therefore exhibited none of those dubious and incoherent notions of good and evil. No sign of that profound corruption that generally accompanies the ignorance and crude manners of once civilized nations that have reverted to barbarism. The Indian owed nothing except to himself. His virtues, his vices, and his prejudices were his own. He had grown up in the savage independence of his nature. If the common people of civilized countries are coarse, it is not only because they are ignorant and poor, but also because in that condition, they find themselves in daily contact with enlightened and wealthy men. The daily contrast between their own misfortune and weakness and the prosperity and power of a few of their fellow human beings stirs anger in their hearts at the same time as fear. Their sense of inferiority and dependence vexes and humiliates them. This internal state of the soul is reflected in their mores as well as their language. They are at once insolent and base. The truth of this is easily proved by observation. The people are coarser in aristocratic countries than anywhere else and coarser in opulent cities than in the countryside. Wherever men of such great wealth and power are found, the weak and poor are all but overwhelmed by their baseness. Seeing no way to restore equality, they despair utterly for themselves and allow themselves to sink below the threshold of human dignity. This unfortunate effect of contrasting conditions is not a factor in the life of the savage. The Indian, though all ignorant and poor, are also all equal and free. When the first Europeans arrived, the natives of North America still had no notion of the value of wealth and seemed indifferent to the well-being that civilized men could acquire with their riches. Yet there was nothing coarse about them. Their actions were governed by a habitual all previously known limits of human ferocity. The Indian would brave starvation to assist the stranger who knocked on the door of his hut. Yet he would also tear his prisoner's still quivering limbs from his body with his own hands. Not even in the most famous ancient republics do we find examples of stouter courage, prouder spirit, or more uncompromising love of independence than lay hidden in those days in the wild forests of the New World. Europeans made little impression when they landed on the shores of North America. Their presence occasioned neither envy nor fear. What hold could they have over men such as these? The Indian knew how to live without needs, suffer without complaint, and die with a song on his lips. Like all other members of the great human family, these savages also believed in the existence of a better world and worshipped God, the creator of the universe, under a variety of names. Their notions concerning the great intellectual truths were in general simple and philosophical. However primitive, the people whose character we have just described may appear, there can be no doubt that another, more civilized people, more advanced in all things, lived previously in the same regions. An obscure tradition common to most of the Indian tribes of the Atlantic coast informs us that those same tribes once lived west of the Mississippi, along the banks of the Ohio and throughout the Central Valley. Mounds built by human hands are even now a daily discovery. If one digs to the center of these mounds, it is said that they rarely fail to yield up human bones. Strange instruments, weapons, and various kinds of utensils made of metal, or suggestive of customs with which today's tribes are unfamiliar.
The Indians of our day are unable to supply any information about the history of this unknown people, nor did those who were alive 300 years ago when America was discovered tell us anything from which we can even so much as piece together a hypothesis. Traditions, those perishable yet perpetually reborn monuments of the primitive world, shed no light on the subject. Yet thousands of our fellow human beings lived here. Of this, there can be no doubt. When did they arrive? Where did they come from? What became of them? And what was their history? When and how did they perish? No one knows. How strange it is that there are peoples who have vanished from this earth so completely that the very memory of their name has been effaced. Their languages are lost. Their glory has evaporated like a sound that dies without an echo. Yet I do not know if any people has ever vanished without leaving at least a tomb as a token of its passing. Thus, of all man's works, the most durable is still that which best recalls his wretchedness and nothingness. Although the vast country just described was inhabited by numerous tribes of native peoples, one can justly say that at the time of its discovery, it was sto still no more than a wilderness. The Indians occupied it, but did not possess it. It is through agriculture that man takes possession of the soil, and the first inhabitants of North America lived by hunting. Their implacable prejudices, their unbridled passions, their vices, and perhaps most of all their savage virtues, marked them out for inevitable destruction. The ruin of these tribes began the day that Europeans landed on their shores. It has continued ever since and is even now being carried through to completion. Providence placed these people among the riches of the new world, but made their enjoyment brief. They were there, in a sense, only in anticipation. These coasts so well suited to trade and industry, these rivers so deep, these inexhaustible Mississippi Valley, this whole continent, in fact, seemed but an empty cradle awaiting the birth of a great nation. Here, civilized men would attempt to build society on new foundations, applying for the first time theories either previously unknown or deemed inapplicable. They would stage for the world a spectacle for which nothing in the history of the past has prepared it. So I just thought, you know, it's really interesting that here's a book quite focused on a people, but it starts out with the description of a place. And I was just thinking, you know, the, the role of place in shaping a people. You know, you look at the Bible with, uh, with Israel, you know, Abraham was called to go to a different place. And then, you know, his tribe grows and they get resettled uh, in Egypt, a different place. And who they were in Egypt, they never became Egyptian. They remained separate. They remained a separate people through economic separation. You know, they were a, a slave caste. And then when they uh, had a vision, when they had a dream of a promised land to their own, their own cultural sovereignty and political sovereignty, they leave, uh, you know, go through the desert time and generation the old generation that carries with it the memory of the old geographical place dies off. And then the new generation arrives in the promised land and uh, possesses the promised land. It's not enough just to, to live in the promised land, but there must be possession. I like what uh, de Tocqueville said about agriculture is how one possesses uh, the land. And it's so interesting with um, the American origin story. You know, I, I'm I'm immensely fascinated uh, with the founding fathers' biographies, with uh, the Puritans and the Pilgrims, um, with any sort of uh, catalog record of the origins of a people, the origins of a tribe, how they started out, and it all comes from geographical taming, t 
taming of a geographic space, uh, the the cultivating of a geographic space, the the uh, sub subduing and dominating dominion over a geographic space. And so how this pertains to us today in this cultural wilderness, in this cultural chaos, in this cultural uh, frontier, we are, um, all of us, desiring uh, a people and a place. You know, we are, we are the rootless, you know, millennial generation or Zoomers, even more so, I'm sure, to a certain extent, the Gen Xers. But our rootlessness is a is a immense problem in our lives. Our our lack of love for a place, our lack of knowledge of a place. You know, the first uh, the first Puritans and pilgrims uh, and colonists that came to the New World, they were by nature in the same space as we are. They were uprooted from their old European life, from their old life in England, their old life uh, in Holland. Uh, in Germany and you know France, wherever they wherever they came from, they were starting over. You know, often in their adult years, in a new wilderness, a new place that had zero institutional uh, authority, zero institutional security, zero institutional uh, credit or, or capital, and so they had to build uh, for their children's children. You know, their children who were born. Uh, into the colonies, who were born into the new world, uh, that for them became home. They they learned to love their place, and they learned to uh, see, you know, the colonies and the frontier as home. But the founding the founding stock, you know, the founding generation, they didn't feel home. They didn't feel rooted. They they, Scruton has a wonderful speech uh, entitled "Consolation." In what she says, uh, the feeling of place is something that can only be inherited. It cannot be created for yourself. You can only give it to your children. And we were never given it. Our generation was never given the baton of belonging. Our generation was never given the inheritance of place, of belonging. And so we have to recreate that for our children. We have to restart the process. And so how this pertains to us, you know, so many of us, we have no, we have no knowledge of our local area, of our local space. You know, if you were privileged enough to grow up in the same area that you now live, you have childhood memories. What, what was our childhood? It was exploring. It was exploring the map. It was exploring the territory. It was familiarity with the territory, familiarity with the map, familiarity with the characters uh, that we were uh, growing up around. As adults, we stop exploring. As adults, we stop uh, keeping the map. We stop keeping the record of the map. And we settle into nodes, you know, home, work, church, home, work, church. And that's the extent of our map. That's the extent of our knowledge of the characters around us. And we expect school to take care of the handing down of network to our children. And so I think this is an incredible place to start. You know, any 
any biography, any uh, book on nationalism, on history of a people must always begin with place, must always begin with the description of the home place. So I just, I found that uh, incredibly interesting with de Tocqueville, describing the, the setting, the stage, as it were, for a new nation, for a new tribe. And so for us going forward, you know, for a lot, a lot of us, we are asking that question, is where I am the setting or, or the stage uh, for the new tribe, for, for the next uh, generation of, of my tribe going forward? And I think that's an incredible uh, question that most are asking is, is this the place I want to give my life to? And it's okay to be a pilgrim, to be a Puritan, to be a colonist, a frontiersman, and move to a place where you feel uh, your children's children will, will be better off. You know, there's, there's no um, shame in that or no harm in that. But at the same time, if you do have a place where the capital is great, the inheritance is great, you know, where your children, instead of being a first generation uh, belonging, they could be third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation belonging. That what an amazing uh, capital! What an amazing inheritance! Praise God. Archangelus, Andrew Quinn, welcome, brothers. Kodiak, welcome, fine sir. <laughs> Mister Max, he won't talk about my homeland. Well, that did Tocqueville. Maybe he wrote some stuff in French. Kodiak Joe, when we first settled the Americas, it was very similar to aliens meeting Stone Age cavemen. Yeah, you know, very much so with, with Africa as well. The parallels to today are, are very similar, believe it or not. We are dealing with uh, the atomization and degeneration um, of our co-citizens, um, compatriots if you want to call them that but but patria is too strong a I, I mean a lot are patria but we are dealing with with spiritual and and moral uh savages you know in our in our current day and the parallels are are right up there you know now is the best time to sort and tribe up that's right copper star i would love the amerindians of history books if I didn't live near so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it. You know, the, the degeneration of, of even the, the, the Indians, you know, you look at Africa, the degeneration of the African tribes, you know, it's not just the white boys who are, have been degenerated and, um, and socially messed up, you know, uh, I encourage the, the patriarchs of, of every ethnicity to, to, uh, appeal to the Lord for their people. Nordhugger, welcome, fine sir. Uh, Kodiak Joe, we need to be actively seeking out like-minded men and be actively building community that our children can grow up in. The men in the Pacific Northwest have the right mindset and are actively meeting weekly. Yeah, praise God, man, praise God. I, and I think that's exactly it, you know. I, it is good to, you know, to move to where people are, where your people, you know, it's a lot of guys... A lot of guys are like, oh, they're doing stuff up in Idaho. I need to move to Idaho. And it's like, are they your people? Like, is that the culture you want to join? You know, even, even a lot of guys who move to, to be part of church communities, it, it's highly valuable to go up there for, for extended times and trips to, to actually go see, is this the culture? Are these the people that, you know, is this tribe? Are these people the people I want my children to marry their children? 
Um, and if the answer is yes, then awesome. By all means, you know, move and and um, consolidate an enclave. Uh, that being said, for for a lot of guys as well, where you are, if there's family, if there's clan, if there's history, you know, at the same time, see if you want to invite some of your friends to to move uh, to where you are, uh, or if there's if there are just legacy neighbors, you know, that are still your guys. <clears throat> but you've hit it on the head there. You know, you have to be meeting weekly. You know, obviously you have church, church community and fellowship, but more than that, you need tribal community and fellowship. You know, it's 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 two very different things the church and the tribe you know a tribe can have multiple churches in it a church uh serves the tribe and so to try and do tribe through the church because as white boys you know we sure know how to do church but we don't know how to do tribe and so we end up treating the church as our vehicle for tribe and that's when all sorts of of trouble uh, comes in you know you start treating the pastor as the tribal chief and then you start uh, putting all these expectations on him that he can't fulfill due to his priestly morality and and priestly uh, role you know so you end up either step into kingship if he does step into being a strong uh, leader you crucify him to the standards of a priest you know or uh, he stays in the role of a priest and doesn't do the hard things that are required of, of tribal leadership, you know, and then guys get offended and, and all this stuff, you know, so you need to be meeting tribally outside of church, you know, there needs to be tribal um, infrastructure in place where guys realize, you know, cause, and here's the thing, a lot of guys, you're going to be tribally um, compatible, tribally, assimilatable with lots of guys who aren't your exact theology and your exact uh, church denomination or whatever. And the moment you try and force all of it through one church theology or church denomination, you start purity spiraling each other, you know, and you could have had a really good tribe with a bunch of great guys. Uh, but instead, you know, you, you're trying to build a church. So yeah, it's really important to, to meet outside of church as well as a tribe. Andrew, I think as white boys, we want to build, but we want to build knowing what we build will be rightfully inherited and not confiscated. We refuse to share the fate of the kulaks. Yeah. And not only confiscated, but co-opted, you know, and, and there's the great uh, hardship as well of church building tribe through church is that a lot of, a lot of ministry guys, a lot of priestly boys, they are unable to gatekeep for the tribe. You know, and so you end up being co-opted by people who aren't your tribe because they are Christians or they are your theology or whatever, but they don't love your people or love your place. Um, and so you end up being co-opted uh, through the ministry domain or through academia or through media. Um, but that's exactly it. You know, what is the whole point of a tribe? A tribe is building for your children's children. You want peace and prosperity for your children's children. And you want your children's children to fear the Lord. You want them to be more your culture uh, than you were, than you are. You know, the Amish children are going to be more Amish than the Amish, you know, because you that is the point of building a tribe, of having an in-group, of gatekeeping against outsiders who want to abuse and exploit and degenerate your children's children. Kodiak, we are a special breed of man in the Pacific Northwest, being the last part of America to be settled. We have many grandparents that were the original homesteaders yeah that's that's really amazing man and, and again you guys are a specific culture you guys are a peculiar culture 
you know, and, and that's the big thing for, for us outsiders, for, for dudes who are like, oh yeah, Idaho, it's really cool. And you, you all move up to Idaho, you know, you can be as based, you know, the most based guy possible, but if you don't honor the founding stock up there, then, you know, it is just like bringing out, you know, it, it, it's very, <clears throat> this whole thing of tribal culture, you know, we, we have to learn to honor uh, the host. We have to learn to honor uh, the people group. Uh, that we live around, you know, and um, otherwise you're you're actually just settling um, another frontier, and and you're you're actually trying to outcompete another tribe for for an area, which is fine if tribes, you know, you can have different tribes in one area, you know, because you can have confederacy of tribes if you've got the same goals and stuff, you know, you can have Amish, an Amish group, and a Pacific Northwest uh, Anglo Protestant group, whatever. And you can both, you know, work together toward economic goals, towards social goals, political goals, that kind of thing, if you both honor each other's uh, tribal sovereignty. But the moment one group, one, you know, one guy comes in and he's like, oh, I'm part of this group now. And then you try and um, you try and demand authority over a group that you were never native to, you know, it's, it's very dishonorable. So in a way, I feel sorry for you, Kodiak Joe, of like the amount of non-Idaho guys who are all pouring in there. You know, a lot of them will be good, honorable guys, but but I can also see a lot of guys being uh, libertarian types. Copper Star, you need the king to do what must be done and a priest to bless the result. Inshallah. Drongo, unsubbing was low IQ move. I banned myself from the chat. <laughs> you, The madman actually did it. It is perhaps better if someone subscribe that's right call a friend fiano welcome hey scott i've recently met a church going christian girl through a dating app cringe and i'm going on a date soon how do i go about knowing she's a good high quality woman well number one not cringe i think um i think uh, i think dating apps are a tool and um you know in this uh technological age it's a way of being very honest and upfront with what you're looking for you know, in the past, you would have told uh, the pastor and his wife, you would have said, you know, I'm looking for this type of girl. These are my values. This is the work I do. Uh, this is how many children I want. And I think I'm going to stay in this town for the rest of my life. And then the pastor's wife would go and with all of the other ladies in the community and boom, you will have a match and you'll go on a date. That was the dating site of 50 to 100 years ago. You know, that technology does not exist anymore. And so now we have a cheap imitation called dating sites. There's no there's no shame in it, bro. So anyway, I'm glad you have met met a lady and going on a date soon. That's great. How do I go about knowing she is a good, high quality woman? Well, I would say, you know, don't focus so much of of uh, modern Western, even Christian dating is on me and the girl, you know, like get to know the girl, ask a whole bunch of questions, go have some fun dates and experiences and experience different things and, and what, you know, what, whatever. Whereas I would say a lot of it has to do with meet her family, meet her parents, meet her, her friends, you know, go to her church, uh, have her come meet your family, meet your friends, meet, meet, come to your church. Um, we live in a context. Now the context isn't uh, almighty, you know, she could have a bad family. She could have a bad church. She could have bad friends, bad context. And she could be a very virtuous girl who loves the Lord sincerely. 
you know so you have to you have to um take that into into account uh and likewise you know a girl could have a great church great family great context great friends uh and be completely unvirtuous you know i think what you are looking for i think what you're looking for it's it's like the uh <clears throat> the masculine and feminine um uh, hierarchy things you know so the masculine uh honor hierarchy that old jack donovan talks about where men men have status by how strong they are how competent they are so how fearless they are how strong they are and then how masterful or competent they are you know so men so a woman when she's looking for a guy she's like how strong is he like physically strong financially strong like how strong is he uh courage right confidence fearlessness she's grading that and then mastery like are you a competent guy have you got your crap together are you are you doing stuff you know guys rate each other like that and then a girl is looking for a strong courageous and masterful man to marry likewise what are guys looking for you know so the feminine hierarchy obviously beauty you you want to be attracted to her right so you want to be attracted to her uh you know and then uh um, helpfulness, you know, is she very helpful uh, to her her family? Is she helpful to her church, to her friends, to her uh, whatever she's doing now? Does she have a helpful spirit, not a independent? Uh, you know, I'm an independent boss, baby. Everyone must help me. Um, I'm I'm the the center of everyone's helping me. I think you can you can see that. Yeah, you know, in, in a girl. Is she helpful versus does she require help? Um, and then the last one is, is she um, obedient or rebellious? You know, so is she obeying the Lord, first of all? You know, you can see a lot of girls, if they're sincere after the Lord, they will be living their life in a way that's that's obedient to what they um, are being led by the Lord to do, either through his word or, or at their church. And so you also want to, you know, you want to see how she uh, treats her father, how she, um, yeah, even treats you. And, and in that way, you're, you're looking at those three kind of status things. So, so you're pegging, you're pegging this girl to a, a hierarchy of, you know, do I think she's beautiful? Do I think she's helpful? And do I think she's obedient? I would just really um, not, not put so much pressure on yourself, bro. It's, it's more than great to, to date, uh, you know, Obviously, don't don't get involved physically. Don't uh, <clears throat> don't go and sleep around before marriage because then you're definitely going to be um, beholden uh, to her. You're going to be obligated to her. Uh, and you know, if things aren't great, then it's like oh, I don't really feel I don't feel great about abandoning this relationship because I'm uh, beholden. I'm obligated. You know. Whereas if you keep yourself above reproach, uh, you can very quickly be like, "Hey, thank you. It was it was nice meeting you. It was great." But I don't think we're I don't think we're going to be compatible for each other and I bless you and, and you can, you know, go on your way. And if she is a great girl and, and you really want to, uh, get hot and hot and sexy, then put a ring on it and get married. Like there's no, there's no reason to wait very long. Oh, one more thing, you know, as well, you know, if you have married friends or if you're, uh, if you have, um, you know, a pastor or, or guys you really trust, um, you know, have them, have have a meal with her and them and then ask that guy like hey what do you think about the her you know because your married friends your married friends will have a very different uh worldview uh to marriage than you who who are yet to be married so that'll that'll be a really good thing 
Kodiak, uh, mix that with the huge tech boom in Seattle and imports. This will be the front line when Revolutionary War II kicks off. Yeah, and all those California people like flocking up, up to the Pacific Northwest as well. God help you. I don't think they'll survive very well, though. So I think you've got a, you know, you've got the heritage uh, frontier homestead vibe going on. You're, you'll be just fine. Copper Star, I want to move out of Arizona. Neither of our families are from here. We just don't know if we want to return to my roots in Louisiana or hers in Montana. Well, do you eat alligator? Do you? Scotch Cuban, make the move, Copper Star. <laughs> Kodiak Joe, Copper Star, we'll take you up here. Well, there you go. You get, you've got offers now. Scotch Cuban, my father moved us here for work, and I'm staying due to my ancestors settling this county. Minutemen in the Revolutionary War, no less. That's a wonderful heritage. You know, and that's the other thing as well, hey, chaps, is making sure to, to catalog your history, you know. I don't know much of my history beyond three generations. It's really unfortunate because no one really cataloged it for us or passed it on to us. You know, oral tradition is not enough. Like, you know, we need to be recording our, even if it's just anecdotes or stories or even mythology, you know, no one minds a little bit of mythology here and there in the family line. Andrew, uh, finding high quality women on dating apps is like fishing for high quality fish in low quality water. Possible but unlikely. The best women are found through mutual friends and groups. Yeah, very good. Kodiak Joe, just see, I warned you, if you, oh, just see, I warning, I'm warning you, if you come up here, be ready to hit the ground running. Is that a threat or an invite? Yeah, I think the thing with the dating app, I think you're completely correct, Andrew, you know, there's a, there's a both end, you know, I, I think there's a, uh, a degeneracy to popular culture dating apps. Um, I, I never used a dating app, so I'm only going on what I've heard. Um, I think a big indicator for the ladies is how old they are as well. You know, so I think the older ladies get, I think the more desperate they will, would be to be married and, and would obviously use dating apps more. Whereas I think younger, uh, younger girls, um, yeah, it's really interesting, you know, cause again, the more virtuous a girl is, uh, is going to correlate with how young she is, you know, cause if you've stayed in your father's house and you've been protected and you're naive and innocent, uh, to the popular culture, you're going to be more virtuous than some girl who's been off at university for four years and then has been, you know, working in the corporate meat grinder, you know, for however many years and living on her own with a bunch of single girls who are partying it up and stuff. It's like, even if you're a Christian and sincerely love the Lord, that's going to be a very toxic environment to constantly live through. Um, so, you know, you're, you're definitely right, um, Andrew. You know, we want to find, uh, we want to find connections through married friends, through church, through events, through associations, groups, you know, things that, that, uh, that we enjoy and have values alignment with. That being said, should you go on a dating app, make sure you take it to that, you know, so you meet the girl through the dating app, but then take it to, you know, make sure that you're, you're having dates with friends, you're having dates with, um, church and groups and ac activities and stuff, you know, don't let online dating, uh, lead to online isolation. Kodiak Joe, definitely an invite. Good. Hit the ground running as in we've got stuff to do. That's very good. Well, praise God, gentlemen. 
I've been catching up on uh, podcast uploads for all of you very impatient gentlemen. I appreciate the goading. I'm I'm 30 episodes away from catching up to being next morning upload of the yesterday's podcast vibe. So getting through that, which is great. Uh, make sure you guys go across to my Twitter page. I have the, uh, the blood rock uh, link up on my Twitter page. Um, I just want you guys to be mindful that we are going to be buying property and we're going to need as many guys as possible investing. Um, so we'll, we'll have a uh, kind of tentative launch as soon as we get all the legal stuff sorted out. But go ahead over to my Twitter page and uh, sign up to the email. That'll just get you on the like kind of I'm interested vibe. Um, and then we start going hard. It'll be great. Copy Star Nationalist. Scott was on Black People Meet at some point. I just know it. Well, frankly, sir, I don't even know what that means. But if it's descriptive by the name, maybe. I don't know. W Laser. Hey, brother. <laughs> it has been a while. Hope you are well too. Well, thanks, gentlemen. It's been a wonderful time. We'll see you all on Monday. And I pray uh, a, a great blessing upon you, Fionor, that this lady turns out to be virtuous and that you kick it off. And if she isn't, that you don't kick it off. And and there it is. It's done. It's done. Alrighty, boys. See you all on Monday. Have a good weekend.